0: All right, we'll be session six, and it says session six on the front cover down at the bottom, and page 39, and we'll be picking up there in just a moment in our series, How to Be Good and Angry. But let me tell you what's coming up over the next few weeks in this uh, class. We have uh, just two more weeks after this one for our eight-week series on anger. And then uh, we will have on April the 2nd and April the 9th, the first two Sundays of April, Dr. Combs will be teaching in here. And the first week, he's going to teach on uh, premillennialism. That is why we believe that there will be a literal kingdom and that Christ will return before that kingdom commences and he will reign in it. So he's going to talk about that. And the following week, he's going to talk about pre-tribulationalism. That is why we believe in the uh, pre-rapture of the church, pre-before the tribulation. That the church will be removed and taken to heaven. And why we believe that and the scriptural and theological support for that. So he's going to do those two issues on those two Sundays. And then uh, the following week is a- April 16th and that's Easter. And we only have one service that day. We will not have Discovering God or Sunday School, just our worship service. At 11 o'clock on Easter, the following week, the 23rd of April, we'll start a new series in here, and that will be titled Anxious for Nothing, and that's going to be on the issue of worry. And I'm sure nobody here has an issue with that, but if you, if you know a friend who does, then you should show up so that you can instruct them, okay? So that's what's uh, coming up. Today is our sixth of eight sessions in the How to Be Good and Angry course, page 39, of your notes, and you see up at the top there that this is section three. So this starts a a new section. Today we're going to talk about how the anger that we are equipped by God to express can be so in a good way. Most of us are only familiar with, uh, evil anger, anger gone bad, but the title of this is that you can be good and angry. So now we want to see what good anger actually looks like. In the top of page 39, we say, let's take then the next step, digging into the good reasons to become good and angry. And where can we find an excellent uh, example? We looked last week at Winston Churchill and an episode in his life that gave us uh, a glimpse, but not he was not a perfect example of that. Abraham Lincoln we saw last week, but he too is not a perfect uh, example of that. But the one who is, is of course the Lord Jesus himself. And if you'll go down to under the, the wrath of God there, in the middle of that first paragraph, we say that uh, Jesus' anger is admirable and appropriate. It's not embarrassing or overblown. Jesus said in his matter of fact way that there is only one who is good. The God portrayed in the Hebrew Bible, the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And so Jesus said that, there's only one who is, is good, and of course that is, that is God. Now where did he say that? You notice that phrase, there's only one who is good, is in quotation marks. Uh, that's found in uh, Matthew chapter 19. It's found in Luke chapter 18. Both of them give the story of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. And you may remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and in Matthew 19 it says, he said to Jesus, good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And if you've ever gone to an evangelism class and they tell you how to sell the gospel to people and how to package it in sort of a slick way, Jesus would have failed all those classes. Because here's a guy, the rich young ruler, who comes and basically says, how can I be saved? And Jesus ends up sending this guy away, sorrowful. Now, do you remember the story? Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that is is God. So immediately, Jesus starts in on this guy's sin. The guy says, what good thing can I do? And in effect, Jesus is saying nothing because you're not good. How do we know you're not good? Because you're not God. If you're not God, you're not good. But I'll humor you. That's my paraphrase. And Jesus says, but, you know, keep the commandments. And proudly, the young man says, oh, I've kept these from a youth. Jesus knew he was wealthy, the rich young ruler. He says to him, then sell your possessions. And give them to the poor. And Jesus knew his heart, of course, and that those possessions had such a grip on him that they were more important than God, which means he hasn't kept the commandments, which say, you will have no other gods before me. This man had another God, his wealth. And Jesus pointed that out, and the man went away sorrowful. So Jesus is indeed the only one who is good because he is God. And he is the expression of God in in human form, God the Son. And that's why then the middle of that paragraph says again, Jesus said in his matter-of-fact way there is only one who is good, the God portrayed in the Hebrew Bible. Every other character in Scripture has feet of clay, people like Moses who lost his temper, David who was coldly vindictive to a man who did him no wrong. Jesus' disciples argued with each other about who was, who was the greatest. Now if you'll skip down to that fourth paragraph, toward the bottom of page 39, whatever you think about God, Come and take a close look at the most famous angry person in history. You'll discover that there is no one whose anger is so like your own and yet so refreshingly different. Remember that we were made in his image with the potential for holy indignation at evil. Now, let me stop there for a minute and remind you. Notice the word potential is emphasized there. It's in italics. We were made in God's image, and we were made by God, designed by God, with the potential to have holy anger, holy indignation at what is wrong. Now, bad anger, then, is this good ability that God gave us, misused and misdirected. The anger that we mostly express, the anger that we're most familiar with, is actually this good capacity that God gave us. But it's this good capacity... This good ability that's being misused and misdirected. Misused because it is being used for our own purposes rather than God's. Misdirected because when it is used in our own agenda rather than God's, then we aim it at the wrong people, the wrong things, and in the wrong way. You remember how we've defined then in this series what anger is. It can be good. It was made to be good. But most of the time, because of our sin, it's, it's bad anger, which is that good ability gone wrong, misused and misdirected. But what is anger? Anger is the constructive displeasure of mercy. The constructive displeasure of mercy. That is, it's displeased. Anger always is displeased at something. The question is, is it displeased at the right thing or at the right persons and in the right way? And good anger is constructive. It's designed to build up. It's designed to help, not destroy. And it is designed to show mercy is what it desires to do to the person at whom the displeasure is directed. And that the verdict of something wrong has been rendered. So anger, we defined on page 10, if you have the previous notes, if you don't have the previous session notes, they are in our resource center, all of them. And you can listen to the audio of the sessions on our website. On page 10, we defined anger as the constructive displeasure of mercy. And that's as opposed to, though, now think about the opposite, what we normally do. The destructive displeasure, not of mercy, but of self-centeredness. So it is displeased. Both of them have that in common. There's someone or something that is not to our liking. But good anger is using it to build up. Evil anger uses it to tear down, destroy. It's displeasure, but it destroys. And it is based upon, and the evaluation of what makes us displeased is based upon our own self-centeredness. So we are often angry at the wrong things, the wrong people, and then we express it in the wrong way. So if you look at that fourth paragraph again, whatever you currently think about God, come and take a look at the most famous angry person in history. You'll discover there's no one whose anger is so like your own and so refreshingly different. Remember, we were made in his image with the potential for holy indignation at evil. And however twisted and upside down our anger has become, the Lord lovingly intends to remake us into that very image. Now look at this last line. The remaking is actually far richer and more complex than the original making. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, God originally made us in his image. But he made made Adam, he made Eve as a direct creation. There they were, fully made. Now he's in the process of remaking us in that image, but that remaking is now in the context of sin. So it's actually... A marvelous thing that God is doing. An amazing thing that God is doing. As he takes people who are habitually going in the wrong direction. Naturally inclined in that wrong direction. And he is redirecting our our thoughts and our motivations and our values and our desires. Into what they were originally designed to to be. So that next paragraph says our recreation. What God's doing in us now is not simply as a pristine potential. What emerges slowly and imperfectly is seasoned and deepened by life experience. We learn the image of Christ out of the wreckage of our firsthand participation in evil. We grow in his image as our salvation in Christ gradually unfolds, as he gradually works out what he has begun. We learn in the midst of a continual baptism by fire, as it were, being called to live out that image in a world of wrongs as Christ himself did. And I just wanted to underscore that, friends, because you and I need to see what God is doing in our lives. If we belong to him, if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that what he is doing is this marvelous thing. And he is actively engaged to finish what he has started. And he's working through all of your junk and all of my junk in order to produce the image of Jesus in us and what we were originally designed to be. Bottom of page 39, we can learn a great deal about ourselves and others by slowing down and taking an actual look at this thing termed the wrath of God. It's the clearest example of how to get good and angry and be patient, merciful, and generous at the same time. You're going to, though, have to discard prejudices and preconceptions. Many people, whether religious or irreligious, envision the God of the Bible as ill-tempered, exacting, and capricious. Rather like us at our worst. Particularly in his Old Testament incarnation, he's supposedly a looming storm cloud of petty, harsh, vengeful wrath. Now, have you ever heard that? You ever thought that? You know, this guy in the Old Testament, who is that? I mean, we've got gentle Jesus, meek and mild, in the New Testament. And you haven't read the whole New Testament, if you think that. But that's what the image many people have. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and that's our guy. That's the guy we like. I mean, Christmas, a baby, I mean, all of it. It's just beautiful. But then you got this Old Testament God, and he's just ticked off all the time. And he's just ready to go off at any moment at the slightest provocation. So back in the day when I had a real job, and I was working at a computer firm out in Ann Arbor, The owner of the uh, company, Gail Jackson, used to come into the lunchroom and just sit and talk with us sometimes. And I got to have a number of spiritual discussions with Gail. She knew that I was going to seminary at the time, all of that. And that was always fascinating to people at these places I worked. Hey, there's this guy over there that's going to like a seminary, he wants to be a minister, and there would be people who would stop by. and just. It was like I was an exhibit in a zoo. And they would come to my cube and kind of look. I've heard about, I think he's a fundamentalist even. Like he believes the Bible, You know, he believes in the ark, he believes in Jonah, he believes all that stuff. And they would just kind of look like, I just wanted to see one with my own eyes. And there's Gail, and we're, we're talking about these things. And I remember Gail saying to me one time, You know, isn't the the God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, aren't they just completely different guys? And so then I had to explain to her, of course, no, that's not the case. But that was her impression. And many, many people have that impression. But it's not clear, next paragraph, what scripture such folk have been reading. The God, small g, they describe, sounds uncannily like us. When anger goes sour, it's demanding, arbitrary, irritable, and judgmental. It sounds nothing like the person actually portrayed in the Bible. Jesus is portrayed as the explicit image of the God of the Old Testament. He is the I am come in the flesh. Generous mercies and just angers perfectly joined together. He's the most admired person in human history and for good reason. He gets just as angry as the God whose character he expresses. And Jesus is the archetype of courageous, self-giving, tender love. When you consider how God describes himself in relation to anger, you will see why Jesus' approach, approach to anger is so much different than one, that what one comes naturally to us. So let's start here with the reminder of the fact that God is slow to anger and he's quick to show mercy. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Now, notice that phrase that I don't have italicized on purpose to emphasize it, slow to anger. It doesn't mean he's so easygoing or indifferent that he never gets upset. That same psalm goes on to say all the wicked he will destroy. But God's anger follows a certain pattern. It is embedded in tangible goodness and mercy. It arises slowly. And when it arises, it is actually an aspect of his moral goodness. He attacks only what is truly evil. Let me stop there. You guys have heard me say several times throughout this series and then again today that anger gone wrong, bad anger, is us misusing and misdirecting this otherwise good capacity that God gave us. And I've said that we do that when, in our self-centeredness, we make this displeasure evaluation. We're displeased about something, but we're displeased about the wrong thing or about the wrong people. We make a false evaluation. Why? Because it's motivated out of our self-centeredness. And here what's being said is that God can be and always is only good and angry. And first, that's because he only attacks what is truly evil. So the first step for you and for me, if we're going to be good and angry... Is that we need to reevaluate our evaluations. We are displeased. Good anger is displeased and bad anger is displeased. But they're displeased at different things and for different reasons. So we've got to reevaluate our evaluation. What it is that makes us displeased. And the truth is most of the time what makes you displeased, what makes me displeased, is my self-centered stuff. I don't like the way it's going because it's impacting me in some sort of inconvenient or negative way. And then I carry that around with me. It's the way my life is going, so I'm mad at my life. And I carry that around with me. And I don't like my job, and unfortunately, I actually have to go to my job, which means I have to drive to it. Which means i got to be out there with other idiots who think it's okay for them to be driving to work at the same time as me. (laughs) So I'm carrying around my anger at life. I'm my displeasure at life. My evaluation of my life. I've gotten a raw deal. I'm not treated right. I've had to get in my car and i got to drive with these other people. Prior to getting in my car, I had to deal with my family. What is up with these people? I understand that there are five of us in this house, my case four. I understand that there's one bathroom. But you all should understand that there's one bathroom and one person who's supposed to be in it. And that would be me. And you're in there and you're doing whatever you're taking, how long you're taking. now i got to go to this stupid job and deal with all these stupid people. And you can see why we're a tinderbox, right? Ready to go off. And in all of that, we're not attacking evil. Our displeasure is not at what's truly evil. The first and most basic reason that God is always good in his anger is because he only attacks what is truly evil. And I've said this a few times, but it is central to you and me getting this. The more self-centered you are, the more evil you perceive there to be. The more self-centered you are, the more centered on yourself you are, the more evil things you see out there. Because you've got this centered. this life should be centered on me view, and so anything that doesn't fit into that and into your convenience and to what's best in your mind for you is now an occasion for anger. That's evil when in fact it's not. You've not evaluated it accurately. You're displeased and you should not be. And you do not have cause to be. Jonah did not have cause to be displeased and to be angry. He was. You remember the story of Jonah. And why is he upset? Because God showed mercy to the Ninevites. And he is ticked the Ninevites. You know what crumbs these people are. How horrible they are. And I knew I don't want to go and talk to them. See, you guys think we were taught, at least I caught, in Sunday school, that the reason Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh is because the Ninevites were so ferocious and they were. he was afraid to go. And the end of the book tells you that's not the reason he didn't want to go. He says the reason he didn't want to go. I don't want to go and preach the God who is mercy because then he might show, say, mercy. To these people. And I don't want him to be merciful to these people. But sure enough, he makes me go. Despite my best efforts to go in the other direction. I wind up going and what do they do? They repent. And in chapter 4, the last chapter of Jonah, he's upset. He's upset because the shade tree that he had has has dried up. He's, He's sulking about that. But he's really angry because God showed mercy to the Ninevites. And God says, Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? You remember that? Are you angry about the right things? And, and Jonah says, yeah. Yeah, I got a right to be angry. So in our own minds, we're justified in this. And we built this up over a period of time and we carry this around with us, this grievance that now can come out sometimes at the slightest provocation. But we're convinced of our right, the rightness of our cause. Please get that then, friends. The more self centered you are, the more evil you perceive, the more things there are for you, you think, to be angry at. God only attacks what is truly evil. Middle of that paragraph, middle of the page. He does great good to all. And only after insult. The insult of endless ingratitude and life-defining rebellion, does he cut off evil? The Greek word for patience literally says that God is long-tempered. It's just the opposite of being someone with a short fuse. God is patient in that he continues to actively treat people well, even when they are offensive and ungrateful. God does get angry, but it's the opposite of spiteful and irascible. So then if you go down to that final paragraph of that section, Jesus makes the same point in the New Testament. Putting a further twist to it, love your enemies and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. To become slow to anger is to become like God. It's a quality that frequently describes God and frequently describes what we are meant to be. All right, so that's how, first of all, God can be good and angry. It's because he only attacks evil and he is patient. Before he cuts someone off, before you see what we read about in the Old Testament, there has always been this patience of God trying to bring people along. And only after they make it clear that they will not be brought along, then does God act. So bottom of page 40, let's see other aspects of God's good anger. One is that it is fair minded. We've seen how anger intrinsically makes a moral statement. It's displeased about something. It's about right and wrong. It's about fairness. God is slow to anger, patient and generous, but he also gets angry, really angry. At the same time, he's always fair. He is fiercely fair-minded. In God, wrath and fury don't describe a mere irritable mood or a momentary tantrum. They express God's wholehearted decision to destroy things that he finds utterly despicable. Now, let me stop there. It's God's wholehearted decision to destroy things that he finds utterly despicable. Now, is God's judgment of what is despicable accurate? Always, right? By definition. We don't know what despicable is apart from God. God is the one who defines what is right and wrong. He is the standard of right and wrong. And so God always makes an accurate evaluation. And when he is displeased, he is displeased rightly. And when he shows this patience and then his patience is exhausted, not that, okay, I'm tired of you, it is, it is clear that you will not be turned. And having made clear that you will not be turned, then God has this wholehearted decision to destroy things that he finds utterly despicable. Now, just in passing quickly, just plug yourself into that for a moment. Yourself. Myself. Here you are living and breathing. Here I am living and breathing. God has not destroyed me. And he has not destroyed you. And yet... Isn't it true from a biblical standpoint that from the perspective of a holy God, sin and sinners are despicable to God? That he could fairly destroy you and destroy me. So I just want you to park on that for a moment. The only time he destroys people, he's always fair. The only time he destroys things and people is when it has become clear that there will be no change. He is patient with them. But then you need to ask the question, then, why didn't he destroy me? And the answer will be given in a little bit. Top of page 41. There's no contradiction at all between slowness to anger and fierce indignation. In fact, it's because God loves so intensely that he must get angry. That matters, and it is wrong, is the judgment we all make and God makes. But his is always a right evaluation. And without such anger, so-called love would be a bland, detached tolerance. If he's going to get up close and deal personally in a world that has a lot of wrong in it, then he must get angry. God is angry at those who victimize and oppress others. He defends the victim. He must stand up for the weak and the powerless. He considers wrongs done and he takes them in hand, says Psalm 10. His anger rights wrongs and it overturns injustices. And it's the same not only in the New Testament but the Old Testament alike. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, notice the question mark, blazes with anger both before and after he tells us to be loving and tender as God is with people who make us mad. He says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. If you condemn others, God will condemn you. If you don't listen to what I'm saying, you will be destroyed. There are passages in the Bible where heat blisters the page, but it's never irascible. Churches that talk about God's wrath usually portray it as threatening. Churches that criticize those churches don't offer a corrective, but they simply eliminate God's anger as something unbefitting. But rarely are the beauty, internal logic, and necessity of God's wrath communicated. Here's one sizzling example from Deuteronomy 29. The anger of the Lord burned against that land... To bring upon it every curse which is written in this book, and the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath, and cast them into another land. Okay? Uh, so, hey, uh, I'm no Bible scholar, but I'm gonna take it God's really upset here. I mean, look at how it's, look at how it's written. Uprooted them in anger and in fury and in great wrath. So Moses is just piling up the synonyms. But what do we learn by this concentrated outrage? Don't let preconceptions that you have about the wrath of God keep you from stopping and examining the inner logic of how this anger works. It always arises for a good reason. It's never a fit or a spasm or a bad hair day. It's never brooding hostility just waiting to explode on some innocent, well-meaning bystander who happened to get caught in the crossfire. The causes are clearly identified, and they make perfect sense when you stop, listen, and think about it. And the passion just, passage just mentioned, astute observers are witnessing the impact of God's anger at work. It's as if they're walking through the rubble of a Nazi munitions factory in June 45. The Allies bombed this building for some good reason, right? The people asked the logical question in Deuteronomy 29, why did the Lord do this? Why this great outburst of anger? They didn't deny God's evident anger, but they were curious about the reasons. And the answer comes simple and clear. Notice, these people betrayed me. I loved them, but they proved to be traitors. That makes sense. It's not irritation. It's not nitpicking for God to be upset at treason. People have every reason to be loyal and thankful friends instead betray him. And their betrayal of God led them to betray others. God-haters become people-haters who abuse and destroy others. And so God then intervenes to do something about it. So if you don't think about it that way, if you don't think about why God did what he did, you'll just read that and you'll go, man angry and in fury and in great wrath and he cast them and that's the way so many of us who just read the old testament in fact many of us are scared to read the old testament because that's just a different god no it's the it's the same god and it's the same god who evaluates perfectly and he always has perfect and good and righteous reasons for what he does so this instinctively makes sense to each of us if you think of it that way As you grasp it, the wrath of God seems not only logical but right. You'll become clearer in thinking about your own anger, too. If he's good, then how could God not get angry at things that are just plain wrong? So consider the following examples of things that elicit righteous anger in order to get a feeling for the inner logic of God's anger. It's going to help you understand your own at its best. It'll shed more light on where your anger goes bad. It'll point in the direction of remaking your experience and expression of anger for the good. So these are all bullet-pointed things that it is righteous to be angry at, to be displeased. You're making an accurate evaluation if these things happen. Betrayal and treason. Lies, gross misrepresentation of another, character defamation. Hypocrisy, laziness, workaholism, or a harsh taskmaster stubbornness, rebellion and backtalk, murder and physical abuse, sexual betrayal or abuse, cheating and stealing, slander and gossip, entitlement and greed. Even people who claim there are no moral absolutes tend to get distressed by these things. Now take another look at that list. Have you ever seen a list like that? That sounds vaguely familiar. It's for a reason. Those are the Ten Commandments stated differently. Here are the ten. You shall have no other gods except me. Don't betr- No betrayal. Don't worship lies and self-serving fictions. That is, there'll be no idolatrous substitutes for the real thing. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, mouthing God talk while living a life of pretense and contradiction. That's hypocrisy. And that's actually the core meaning. Profanity and cursing are secondary applications. You know, you shall rest on the the Sabbath. Your life needs a rhythm of hard work and true rest to evidence, trust in God as your provider and bring joy to the weary. Honor your father and your mother rather than rebelling. Don't murder or do any other harm to another or express unjust and damning anger. No immorality of any sort. Your sexual ethics should protect others rather than use them. Don't steal in any way, shape, or form. Don't lie or speak evil of others, bearing false witness. Don't organize your life around covetousness. I want, I want, I want. Those are all the things that we were just talking about in all those bullet points. They're the Ten Commandments. These things that arouse anger in anyone with a conscience are simply the familiar Ten Commandments, paraphrased a bit and adapted to our everyday experiences. When your anger is justly aroused, it operates along the lines of those Ten Commandments. Like God, you're displeased at betrayals of love, of selfishness, backstabbing, hypocrisy. All those things that anger you, anger God as well. More to the point, get this sentence. The reason these things anger you is because they anger God. Remember, you were made to get angry at the right stuff. And when you're angry at those things, you're angry at the right stuff. And the reason we all naturally do that is because the God who made us in his image does that. That's why he gave us the Ten Commandments. We're hardwired morally to know that some things are plain wrong and they need to be dealt with. So you actually work the way God says you work. You have the capacity for just outrage because he does. Notice, God's anger is not unpredictable and mean-spirited. Far from a contradiction to love, that anger comes from love. It's the product of love betrayed when he's the one who's been done wrong and of compassion for the victims of injustice when others are the ones being hurt. Not only did God publish this list in the Ten Commandments, and not only do violations of these things occasion your actual real-life anger, But it's no accident that these things also form the explicit or implicit basis of our laws. Have you ever thought of that? Protecting persons and property and reputations. Theft, murder, defamation of character, reckless endangerment, pedophilia, terrorism, treason, and the like. Not only call forth personal anger, they call for criminal proceedings. This points us to something else very important to understand about God's anger. Something that illuminates our own anger. To betray God and to do what harms other people is to break God's commandments. Perhaps you're familiar with what Jesus called the two greatest commandments on which everything else hinges. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why did God say this? Because I have loved you, you were made, we were made to love him in return. Because I have made you in my image, you are made to love other people. Since I love you, then you're supposed to love other people like I love you. And if you don't love me or others, you betray a relationship. Now, what is the technical word that describes wronging God and others by being unloving? Sin. The word means something that wrongs a relationship. It's different from a mistake or an error or a failing. It describes a relational betrayal, not just a personal failing. Sin means to wrong God by betray, betraying love for him. Sin means to wrong other people by violating love for them. The things that naturally most outrage you, those things that most universally upset human beings everywhere, and the very things the Bible lab- labels sin. We are not often taught that sin is what you ought to get upset about because it's what God always gets upset about. You can see how far then we've come from this bizarre notion of a prying, tyrannical God who requires us to give up all freedom, submit to just his whims, his whims, who fills us with guilt for no good reason and then punishes us mercilessly. There are people in church right now all over the country and the world who think that about God. But the God portrayed in the Bible is no killjoy. Look at the next paragraph After that, God is slow to anger and full of undeserved kindnesses. He's like a parent who hangs in there, persistently loving a wayward child. He gets angry, really angry, but at true evils. He shows further spectacular kindnesses to people willing to deal with what's wrong. So here we've already looked at two of the most unpopular and misunderstood concepts in the world, the wrath of God and sin. But now, hopefully, these things can begin to serve you in fresh ways because they're extremely important things. And now let's look at that next subsection. God shows his love for his people through four expressions of his anger. Many people view God as infinitely malleable. Someone, something to whom each of us is free to attach our own opinions as if God's character were decided from the bottom up. Now do you see what's saying there? You know, you ever heard somebody say, you know, I like to think of God as I don't care what you like to think God, of God as. More importantly, God doesn't care what you like to think of God as. Because God is what he is. That's bottom up. Well, you know, I like to think that God would... Well, here's the thing. God wrote a book. And so you can look and see what God is like and what God does. But so many people have this. Well, I don't think God would... Or I don't think a God who is loving would... But if you want to know what a loving God and a righteous God and how those two things go together are, you can see them in the book that he wrote. So if you go down to the last paragraph on that page, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we learn a surprising truth about God's anger. God's anger is spectacularly unfair. We usually call something unfair when we feel that we got a raw deal. That we got cheated out of something we deserve in all fairness. But what about when we get better than we deserve? Ah, that's reverse unfairness. We're good with that. But that's reverse unfairness. It's a generosity that goes far beyond what would be fair. And strangely enough, we find that hard to live with too. Until we get it. And then we're okay with it. To illustrate this principle, Jesus tells a story about a boss who hires people at different times during the day, right up to the last minute, hiring them right up to to the proverbial 11th hour. You ever said that? So-and-so comes skating in at the 11th hour? That comes from this paragraph, actually. And when it came time for the workers to receive their pay, those who came in at the beginning of the day were astonished to discover that the latecomers who came in at the 11th hour got paid the same amount. They went to the boss aggrieved and he met their complaints with questions that made their pettiness apparent. Did I not pay you what I agreed to pay you? Was I not fair to you? And then why then do you complain? As much as we needed ourselves. Read this next line. Grace can be a hard thing to swallow when it's extended to somebody else. See what Jesus was saying there is. <laughs> The mere fact that you've got breath to ask that question and to make that accusation means that you've already been treated with grace better than you deserve. You've already been treated unfairly in your favor. And I'm giving you an illustration of other people being treated unfairly in their favor. But you don't want that to happen. But can you relate to those all-day workers' distress? The anger that we feel or would feel in their situation should remind us that our anger is not as pure as God's anger. It reminds us how much we need grace that we sometimes begrudge to other people. The parable of the workers shows how hard it is for us to reconcile anger, which is so often fueled by our self-righteousness, and at the same time to love which rejoices in another's good. That makes it hard for us to understand that God's anger and love are entirely consistent. They're different expressions of his goodness and his glory. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield put it this way. Jesus burned with anger against the wrongs he met within his journey through human life, as truly as he melted with pity at the sight of the world's misery. And it was out of these two emotions that his actual mercy proceeded. You can't understand God's love if you don't understand his anger. Because he loves, he's angry at anything that harms those he loves. Now, notice the way God's children experience his anger. His anger is expressed on their behalf as supremely tender love. As we will see, the Bible is consistent about this. Yet anger, by definition, sets itself against wrongs with intent to destroy. So how can God's wrath become something God's children love and trust rather than something they fear and dislike? How is God's anger an expression of him being for us rather than an expression of him being against us? The good news of the gospel is always presented in terms of how love and anger come to be resolved. God shows his love for his people through four expressions of his anger. I want to go through these quickly and in our remaining couple of minutes. Make an application. If you have to leave, I'll just call you out when you step up. Well, here they are. First, in love, the anger that your sin deserves fell on Jesus, not on you. Do you understand then that that's the wrath of God being poured out? That's the anger of God being poured out focused with all its ferocity upon not you who deserved it, but on Jesus who did not deserve it. That's God's love and anger together on the cross. Second, in love, God's anger works to disarm the power of your sin. Because God hates sin, he wants to eradicate sin from your life and my life. That's why he instructs us as he does. That's why he gives us his Holy Spirit in order to motivate us, convict us, rebuke us as we read God's word. Third, God's anger will deliver you from the pain of other people's sins. There's coming a day when all that is evil and all those who refuse to embrace the God who reaches out to them, God will destroy. The people that in your life that are doing evil to you, God is not indifferent to that. And either in this life, but certainly in the next, God will remove that evil from you. And he's going to create a kingdom in which none of that will exist. And then fourthly, God's anger serves as a warning and a check to protect us from returning to a lifestyle of sin. We wander. He brings us back. He disciplines us. Hebrews 12. Why? It's in love. And he's displeased when that happens because he knows where that road leads. So out of love, he then reaches out to you. So that means these realities should nourish our hearts. And I just want to read the next few sentences and we'll be done. Our Father knows us. Each of these four aspects of God's anger is constrained by mercy to comfort a different aspect of our human struggle. So let's look at these. When your heart becomes fearful and you wonder how God could ever love you, There's something for you to remember. Jesus took your sins upon himself. That's the first of those four truths that we looked at on the prior page. When God considers your sins, he remembers his mercy through the blood of Jesus. Secondly, when you feel discouraged and weak, that you have no strength to fight all that is proud, unruly, and forgetful inside of you, remember the Holy Spirit hates evil loves good, and will not quit working on the inside. He will complete the good work he began in you. That's the second of those truths, that it works to disarm the power of your sin. Third, when you feel overwhelmed by the heartache, unfairness, disappointment, callousness, and betrayal that you experience, remember, the Lord will destroy every cause of pain, stumbling, and tears. Because God loves those he has befriended, he will defend them from every enemy, death, sin, Satan, and even unfriendly people. And then last, when you're tempted to pack it in and give up, plunging back into the darkness, remember the Lord is a holy fire and he disciplines those he loves and that we might share his holiness. Proverbs says, The righteous fall seven times and rises again. He will not let you go fatally astray. Next line, God's wrath is your hope and God's wrath is my hope. Have (laughs) Have you ever heard a line like that? God's wrath is your hope. And God's wrath is my hope. The fact that God gets righteously angry at what is bad and sinful and wrong is a wonderful thing. And because the God who does that is a God of love and he poured out that wrath on Jesus and he empowers you to see sin slowly but surely eradicated in your life. Because he hates evil, he is going to remove it. And because he hates evil but loves you, when you and I go astray, he's going to do what's necessary to pull us back in. God's anger, God's wrath is your hope. You can be good and angry because God is all the time. Now, next week, only got two weeks left. How can you change? How can I change? How can I become? That's all true. All right, Pastor, thanks. How can I become good and angry? We'll begin to look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this blessed time to consider these awesome truths. They're all about your character. They're all about you. They're all about what you are like. And Lord, you are the I am. I am that I am. You are the objective truth of your universe. You made it. And everything that is created is in reference to you. As created things and in in the moral realm, the things that are right and wrong are all in reference to you. Every piece of it always comes back to you. So we thank you, Lord, for telling us explicitly about who you are and what you are like giving us, yes, a systematic theology of your person and your attributes, but then showing us in real life how that character works itself out so that we can see it and then emulate it. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is rightly angry at what is wrong and harmful. We thank you, Lord, that that, that, that wrath is expressed in love for your creatures and in particular for your people. So help us to see it that way so that we can truly say God's wrath is our hope. We thank you for the cross upon which that wrath and that love were perfectly shown. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that is doing battle within us, in our hearts, that are raging to be torn in different directions. Because we have the Holy Spirit, he has a dog in that hunt, a dog in that fight, and he will not give up until our hearts are completely captured. We thank you, Lord, that you are removing and will remove one day all the vestiges of evil that harm. And thank you, Lord, that you won't let me go fatally astray. As your child, you are going to pull me back and you will do what it takes because you hate the evil and the harm that will cause and you love me. Help me to remember all those this week. Help us to remember those this week and help us to practice that kind of loving anger in our relationships this week as a reflection of you. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.